Father, let me be the one who takes the initiative, who hands it over to you, the one who stops criticizing, the one who stops having a go, the one who stops putting others down, but the one who's going to get alongside others and shake them by the hand and say, I'm praying for you. How can I help you? What can I do? That's the Christ-like model. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Over the last few Sundays, we have been steadily working our way through the book of Romans, and today we're coming to Romans chapter 14. So if you have your Bible with you, could you turn please to Romans chapter 14 as we read together verses 1 through 7, in fact, 1 through 8, Romans chapter 14, and you'll find it on page 1765 in the church Bible, page 1765, Romans 14, verses 1 through 8. The Apostle Paul writes these words, "'Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters.'" One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord. For he who gives thanks to God and he who abstains does so to the Lord. For none of us lives to himself alone. And none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. The book of Romans, as most of you know, was written around the springtime of the year 64 to 65 A.D., Apostle Paul was living in Greece at the time. He was writing to the church at the heart of the Roman Empire. New Testament scholars tell us there was possibly a group of 50 or 60 in one main church, and there were several house churches across the city. And as you can imagine, being at the heart of the Roman Empire meant that in any one church you would have masters and slaves. You may have had a senator, someone from the Roman nobility. You may have had tradesmen and craftsmen from every walk of society. But it would be a mixed group. Some of them, in fact, may have come from different parts of the empire who are now serving in Rome. The Apostle Paul realizes that when you're writing to folks who come from different cultural, edu educational, or a class system, you will have different viewpoints and different understandings on issues. And so, when we come to Romans 14, that's the contextual backdrop. About two or three weeks ago, I was at home, and I could hear my wife Ruth on the telephone with the man from the pest control company. 
and I could only hear her side of the conversation, and I could only hear her say this, Ruth, yes, Ruth Gibbons, no, G-I-B-B-O-N-S, no, English, no, English is my first language. And what you learn is that when you have a strong accent from another nation and someone from that home nation are both on the phone together trying to communicate, it's not always that easy. Back in 2007, when we first arrived in Greenville, I was absolutely horrified to hear a mother say about one of her children, she's ugly. I thought, imagine describing your child as ugly. That's awful. She wasn't describing her child as ugly. What she was saying was what the child was doing was wrong. And when you come from different cultures and have different parents and grandparents and different upbringings, you realize that not everything you say means the same thing to everyone. When you're five or six years old and you go off to school for the first time, you quickly begin to realize that the other boys and girls in the class may do things differently from you. They have different parents and different grandparents. They may not celebrate the 4th of July the way you have always celebrated the 4th of July. At Thanksgiving, they may have different traditions from you. And when you're five or six years old, you begin to discover that people are different. When, of course, you go into high school, you realize it again. When you go off to college and then into the workplace, you realize that folks have different political convictions, different social convictions, different educational backgrounds, different regional uh, variations as well. And with all of that in mind, what the Apostle Paul is doing here is this, that there are at times things in the Scripture you may have deep convictions about and others don't, and that's what he's raising. But the key to understanding chapter 14 comes in the first verse. Look at it again. He says, except those whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. And everything else that comes into chapter 14 is about disputable matters. We know, of course, the very foundations of our faith. We know those foundational principles we know of the essential essence of the gospel. And Paul has spent the last 13 chapters telling us again and again and again of the everlasting love of God. He's told us one Sunday after another that He has us firmly in the palm of His hand, that no one can take us out of His safekeeping of us. And all of that has been established. And now he comes to chapter 14. And what sets chapter 14 apart is this, that Paul is now moving from the essentials to the non-essentials, the disputable matters, things that are not foundational or lie at the heart of our faith. And the principle that Paul is about to teach the folks at Rome is this, if the Scriptures are not dogmatic on it, we have no right to be dogmatic on it either. The gospel is crystal clear throughout the Scriptures. The love and grace and goodness, the sovereign providential purposes, His redemptive decrees are crystal clear, are laid out for us in Scripture, and it's clear. But there will be from time to time issues that are disputable, that are 
unclear. And so Paul is beginning to say to the folks in Rome, as you grow and develop in your faith, the things that are disputable among us, we shouldn't be dogmatic about, because the Scriptures are not dogmatic about them. Now, some of you are a little concerned. You're saying, okay, Richard, I hear what you're saying, but where are you going with this? What are the non-essentials? Well, let me give you a little of the historical backdrop here. In the church in the first century in Rome, you had folks from all sorts of different backgrounds. Some of them would be Gentiles. Some of them would be Jewish. Some of them would have worshipped idols in the past. And the gospel has impacted and transformed their lives, and they are growing in their faith. And day by day, they are asking themselves, Father, where are you in the midst of all of this, in my particular circumstance? How do I respond to it? And what are the biblical principles that I would adhere to in this particular situation? And in Rome during those times, there would be a number of folks who come from a pagan background. And their pattern and their custom and their religious upbringing would be that they would come to a place of worship each week. There would be, we have a table in front of us, imagine for yourself, but it would be an altar. And there would be burning coals all over this altar. And they would bring with them some meat purchased at the market. It would then be set aside for sacrifice, and they would come, and they would lay it on the altar. They would step back. They would then pray, and then they would retire and go about their daily business. And the meat had been offered to idols as part of a sacrifice. Now, that's the contextual backdrop. Now, imagine the church in Rome who had gathered together for a Sunday morning worship service, and then they were having church lunch together. They might do that once a quarter every month. Who knows? But inevitably, someone would say, where does this meat come from? Because they would know that in terms of pagan idol worship, not all the meat would be burnt up, but some enterprising individual would gather up the parts that were left over, sell it on to the local butcher, and he would cut and dice. And of course, and you and I, and New Testament scholars and historians tell us that the barbecue in first century Rome was just excellent. It was the best. It was finger-licking good. And of course, if you had to be careful whether you used Caesar sauce or Senate sauce, because some was a little stronger than the other. Now, I'm saying all of that with my tongue firmly in my cheek, but the point is this, that some of that meat would be sold at a butcher shop, and Sunday lunchtime, as the Church of God gathered for lunch, inevitably the question would come up, where did this meat come from? Was it offered to idols? And some in the church would get a little hot under the collar, and they would say, we absolutely cannot eat this because it was offered to a pagan idol as part of a sacrifice, and therefore it is clearly contaminated meat. And we as Christians in all due conscience, we cannot touch that contaminated meat. And others in the congregation would say, what on earth are you talking about Idols are simply pieces of wood shaped like a god, or perhaps it's stone that's shaped like a god. These gods don't exist. Meat offered to someone that is, doesn't exist can't contaminate anyone. And you can see when folks got together, the various views caused a bit of a disturbance. 
Now look at the passage again. So Paul writes, 14.1, except those whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. When one, one man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, you're saying, okay, Richard, I get the point. This is a peripheral issue, and it's certainly a peripheral issue for us today in South Carolina in the year 2015. Why are you taking so much time to lay all of this out? Because it really doesn't apply to us. Should we always come to worship with a collar and tie and a suit? Or could we come without a tie? Could we come in a polo shirt with jeans? Or when it comes to worship, can we sing only traditional songs, or can we sing contemporary songs? At times, is it legitimate to have musicians join us in the worship of God, or should it be the human voice only? Can you see where I'm going? What are the things that are essential and the non-essential? And what Paul is saying to the church in Rome is this, those of you who feel you can eat meat without any difficulty, don't give those a hard time who feel they can't. And he is saying to them, when it comes to disputable matters, when it comes to things in the peripheral edge, please don't go upsetting others. Don't judge them. Don't put them down. Allow their faith to grow and mature so they themselves come to a settled conviction on it. And that's exactly what he says in verse 5. He says, work it out for yourself. Spend time in the Scriptures. Pray. Engage with God. Become comfortable in every area of your life. But if folks are not measuring up to where you are, encourage them. Don't be critical of them. Don't discourage them. Don't be on top of them every moment of every day. Love them. Get alongside put your arm around them, shake them by the hand, tell them you're praying for them. Take them to lunch or breakfast someday. Be there for them. Mentor the faith for them. Now, those of you who have been with us over the last couple of weeks will recognize what I'm about to say next, because there has been two themes that have come up again and again and again as we've worked our way through these chapters in Romans. The first theme that most of you will remember is that of consecration. A couple of weeks ago, I introduced it for you and gave you a definition, and I'm absolutely sure everyone will remember, but let me give it to you again. Consecration is a radical separation from a secular worldview to a godly purpose and mindset. A radical separation from a secular worldview to a godly purpose and mindset. What that means for us is this, that when we embark upon growing in our faith, and when we are determined to be more Christ-like day by day by day in our daily living, 
in our marriage, in the way we raise our children, in our families, in our place of work, in worship on Sunday morning, we will intentionally say, Father, enable me, please, to have a consecrated life so that I might, in terms of worship, worship you with a pure heart and a pure soul and a pure mind. Let me be yours. Father, refine me, shape me, make me more Christ-like. And when you make that commitment to be consecrated in your life, of course you will discover what? That the very natural next step is to move from consecration to transformation. And transformation is that deliberate, determined let me rephrase it, is a deliberate determination to think biblically and act accordingly. And that's what Paul is saying. Think biblically and act accordingly. Now, if so far you feel I have been generally describing Romans 14, let me become a little more specific, and let me genuinely move from principles to meddling because that's exactly what Paul does in this passage. He goes deeper and deeper and deeper, and he really begins to touch the lives of the folks in Rome. And let me follow the passage with you. The first eight verses we've explored. When it comes to verse 9, what does he say? For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that He might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. And you, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? And then jump on ahead to verse 13, and he says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Now, twice Paul uses what academics call familial language. It's both familiar and it's familial. And he says, why do you end up judging your brother? He's using the language of the family. Most of us, I think, find ourselves almost in a family system each day. Now, let me explain what I mean. Sometimes, if you work in a lawyer's office, you work with folks you know well, people you admire, have high regard for. You've worked with them for several years. Or it may be you are head of a school, and you know your staff, and you trust them, and they are outstanding staff. It may be part-time you volunteer as a high school coach, and you know your players, and you know their parents, and you get on extremely well with them. Or it could be that in a family situation, there is again that close-knit group, but from time to time, whether it be a family, a lawyer's office, in a school, or volunteering as a coach, tension and difficulties arise. It may be that over Thanksgiving, Uncle Tom, when he was round the family table, and it's always Uncle Tom, he just said whatever he felt, and he upset Aunt Mabel. And Aunt Mabel said, I'm just not going to speak to him again. He does that every year. He offends me. How do you respond as a family? What happens in your lawyer's office if tension and difficulty arise? What happens if you are the head of school and the parents begin to be critical or you are the head coach 
And you notice that parents are gathered in little groups around the sports field on a Friday evening or a Saturday morning when you're practicing and they're becoming hypercritical of you and all that you're doing. How do you respond to that? Well, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is this. If you find yourself overly critical of someone else, if you find that you always want to get in there and sort every problem, if you want to get in there and manipulate things to suit your best interest, please stop. Resist that. And that's why he's saying, why do you look down on your brother? Why do you judge your brother? Stop that. Now, if I have used the illustration relating to family, let me use a second illustration. Some of you will be very familiar with this uh, imagery I'm about to use, and it's that of the old-fashioned telephone operator. You will have seen it uh, perhaps in a working environment or certainly in the movies where the switchboard operator is sitting there and she has her headphones on, and as the calls come in, she does what? Her primary job is to do what? is to maintain and make sure there are open lines of communication. And so you'll see her taking out one switch and putting in another, and so it goes on so people can talk. But in a school environment, in a law office, in a family, or wherever the tension and difficulty arrives, sometimes what happens in that group behavior is that some in the group give the power to the person they think of as the parent in the group and they become children. And so, they give the power and the information and the control to someone else. And if that individual operates like an old-fashioned switchboard operator, that, that individual then has information. And that information is no longer about open lines of communication. It's about editing that information. It is about manipulation and about control. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, whether it be a school setting, whether it be a lawyer's office, whether it be a head coach or in a church or in a family situation, if you find yourself doing what? Instead of keeping open lines of communication but manipulating, editing, commenting on, Paul is saying you need to stop that. You need to let it go. You need to step back, and you need to say, Father, there are some things in my life that I am unable to deal with. Let me take those things, hand them over to you, and leave them there. Grant me, please, the strength, the conviction to live that consecrated life where I am able to do what? To radically separate myself from the behavior that I once would have engaged in and to be more godly and Christ-like in my daily working environment, whether it's in the office or in the school or in the family unit, wherever I'm spending my days. Father, let me be the one who takes the initiative, who hands it over to you, the one who stops criticizing, the one who stops having a go, the one who stops putting others down, but the one who's going to get alongside others and shake them by the hand and say, I'm praying for you. How can I help you? What can I do? That's the Christ-like model. So, when Paul says, when we dispute about the peripheral stop. Hand it over to the Lord. Stop being negative, critical, 
judgmental. Hand it over and allow the Lord to deal with it all. That's what's going on in this passage. And if he's encouraging us to move to consecration and transformation, notice how he finishes the chapter. Verses 17, 18, and 19. Not quite finished, but it summarizes all we've been looking at so far. The Apostle Paul writes, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So, Paul finishes his chapter by doing what? He finishes the chapter by a call and a challenge to be Christ-like. And the end of the chapter is very different from the beginning. The beginning of the chapter was about the non-essentials, the peripheral, the external. But the end of the chapter is about the internal. And in essence, he is saying this, the kingdom of God is not about what you eat or what you drink. It's not about what you put in your tummy. It's about what you put in your heart. It's about your relationship with Christ. Are you determined to live for Him? Are you determined that your life will be consecrated and transformed? Are you determined to hand it over to Him, to stop being critical, to stop being judgmental, but to do the Christ-like thing, to take the initiative and to move from consecration to transformation? The kingdom of God is about righteousness and joy and the peace of the Holy Spirit. That's the challenge He has for us. So, my challenge this morning as I bring everything to a conclusion is this. I wonder if you're here this morning and you're in a situation that no one else knows about. And today and in the course of tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday, as you go through this week, you are saying, Father, help me please to be consecrated to you alone. I know I cannot do it in my own strength. I recognize the individual that's described in the Scriptures, but I need your strength. I need your power. I need your enabling grace. Father, encourage me. Stand with me. Allow me to be submissive and fully surrender to you in order that I might what? find myself in that place where there is a radical separation from the secular world around and a move towards a godly purpose and mindset and the transformation to think biblically and act accordingly. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this wonderful passage of Scripture. Help us, please, this week to be determined to follow You. Father, You know us better than we know ourselves. You know every situation we are facing. Help us, please, to stand back from being critical, to stand back from being judgmental, and to do the opposite, to be loving and gracious and kind and Christ-centered and prayerful in our response to others. 
Father, may we as individuals and as the body of Christ in this place make every effort to do what leads to peace and joy and living through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Presbyterian Church in downtown Greenville invites you to Holy Week services Thursday, April 2nd at 7.30 p.m. for a communion service and Easter Sunday, April 5th at 8, 9, 15, 9, 30, 10, 45, and 11 a.m. More information at Easter at fpc.com.